everyone. Like Pastor Kevin said, we are beginning a new series here at Spark. So generally, we're in what is in the liturgical calendar, so the calendar that many Christians all over the world for centuries have celebrated together. We're in what's called the Advent season, which is focusing on the impending birth of Jesus that many Christians all over the world will celebrate in a few weeks on December 25th. So at this time, on the liturgical calendar today, December 8th, is actually uh, what's called the Feast of Immaculate Conception. And the topic that we're going to talk about today actually ties in very closely to that. So this is the first in our series on birth. Uh, In particular, today, we will be focusing on the birth of Jesus and on Mary herself and in her role uh, in that process. So one of the things first to point out that Um, You all may have heard of the Feast of Immaculate Conception or the Doctrine of Immaculate Conception. Of course, it's the the idea that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit when uh, Mary was pregnant with him. And it is one that would be very familiar to Catholics. It's very unfamiliar probably to Protestants. In fact, it's probably so unfamiliar that you probably didn't notice that that's not actually what the Immaculate Conception is about. It's not about Jesus' birth. It's actually about Mary being conceived uh, in, in a holy and special way, Mary being conceived free from original sin, uh, that is the, the doctrine that the, the Catholic Church has as part of that. Um, and tied to that is that Mary lived a sinless life and she was a virgin. So it's funny, right, that uh, I think there are a lot of Protestants who got so nervous by so many things that I just said about Mary <laughs> that your reaction is to probably just not think about her very much at all. That's kind of how it's, uh, it has shook out over time. And in fact, the, uh, the Mary's song that uh, is, in gospel, uh, is in the Gospel of Luke that is in the first chapter is probably one that you are uh, familiar with, but only in specific context. I know for a lot of Protestants, the Mary's song that they're familiar with is uh, CeeLo Green singing, Mary, Did You Know? Or, you know, one of, what, 20 different, 30 different singers who've covered that song over the years. And I think what happens in that case, because of this nervousness, uh, about thinking about Mary too much among Protestants, we end up uh, not giving her and her song the appropriate space for it to speak. But we're going to tackle that very issue today, because why should our Catholic brothers and sisters have all the fun? So we're going we're gonna to go through that as well. And part of the, uh, the big thing that I want us to uncover is that when, when, we, uh, when we ignore or uh, focus on the wrong aspects of Mary's life and Mary's song, we actually fail to see it as the fight song that it is in its original context, a subversive piece of a government overthrowing uh, literature. Um, this, uh, in the New Testament, these are the, uh, the, it's the largest set of words that are spoken by a woman in the New Testament. And there's a, there's a special message here that is important for us to cover today. So one of the key things that, that is going to have to be a part of this discussion is whether you're, you're Protestant or Catholic, there are a lot of toxic attitudes that exist out there in here about women in general or pregnant women in particular or mothers in particular. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, often ends up being the canvas on which we project all kinds of those harmful cultural stereotypes. So these are ones that we might even fall into whether we want to or not. This is the idea of thinking of Mary, the way the gospel unfolds her story, as one of being passive 
and meek and unquestioning in her role in the story. She's given, she's delivered shocking news that even though she's not had sex, she's going to be pregnant with a baby. And her response is very much like, yes, let's do it. And we tend to think of that as like, wow, um, that must have been so easy for her uh, because she has no will of her own. Or like, that's the, the implicit message that we give. And so the idea is that she ends up being in, in the narrative that we tell she exists to push the agendas of the men in her life or the men that, that she will raise. There's really another approach, too, that is kind of on the opposite end, but also kind of uh, ends up being related to treat Mary and then also women in general as precious and pure with the, uh, the prize uh, aspect of femininity being preserving female virginity, um, it being the highest uh, form of purity that one can attain, and to think of motherhood as the highest calling that a woman can strive for. So Jesus' birth is many things, but is not those things. And those stereotypes make it hard for us to appreciate how God is pushing God's story forward through Mary, through the birth of her son, and through the song that she sings. So first of all, I think we should talk about what this, uh, you know, what like level set on how harmful some of these attitudes can be, different ways that they get expressed. And then we'll talk about what I think birth really is, the way that Mary is singing about it. Now, some of the most heartfelt images you might have about Mary and Jesus might come from the movie, The Passion of the Christ. In this uh, particular scene, uh, Jesus, uh, he built uh, you know, remember, keep in mind, the story of Jesus takes place in first century Palestine. And there's a scene in The Passion of the Christ where Jesus, the omniscient God that he is, uh, builds a table, a futuristic European table where you sit up <laughs> and you have chairs. And, he, and he's a carpenter, so he's really good at that stuff. And he's God, so he can see into the future and build these things for Mary. And it's presented in the movie as a tender moment between Jesus and Mary. And it's almost like there's a subtext of what must it have been like raising someone like Jesus who knew everything and could do everything so adorable. And in that scene too, she's very confused by these futuristic European chairs that Jesus built. There's this idea then that Mary's life um, would have been, uh, it, it would have been particularly passive in the case of raising Jesus, because when your son is the second person of the Trinity, how much can you actually do or play a role in teaching that son like what it means to follow God or what it means to be faithful to God in that context? We treat it like when Mary is singing her song to Jesus, Jesus somewhere in the womb would have been like, yup, I'm on it. I know exactly what's going on. That's kind of how we approach that case. But really, that is nothing. That couldn't be further from the truth. And I think a lot of that comes from not just uh, harmful attitudes that we have about what it means to be a mother in the ancient Near Eastern world or in our present context, but also this idea of a Superman Jesus, right? A Jesus that um, automatically said and did and believed from birth all of the things that we now know about him after centuries or millennia of reflection. So first, I want to read that song that Mary sang to Jesus, and then we're going to talk about what I think is actually going on in this story, all right? So this, the song itself, Mary sings uh, in context. This is right after she, um, she has been told that she is going to be pregnant with Jesus, and she becomes pregnant, and then she meets up with a relative of hers, Elizabeth, who is also miraculously pregnant um, with John the Baptist, and they meet, and they bless each other, and then Mary sings this song in Luke 1, starting in verse 46. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my 
spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for God has been mindful of the humble state of God's servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is God's name. God's mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. God has performed mighty deeds with God's arm. God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. God has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. God has helped God's servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as God promised our ancestors. Singing this song is far from passive or meek in that context. Birth, the birth of Jesus in Mary's case, and birth in general is risk. And that is often lost on us because we have benefited from the subversive uh, upside-down kingdom work that Mary and Jesus and Jesus' early followers put down in our place. In fact, there are places, though, where uh, there are communities of followers of Jesus who have felt that they were living under this kind of oppressive, unjust government. There are many movements. Uh, there have been, uh, like especially in the 20th century, that are liberation movements, like, for example, within South American governments. And for a lot of those, those um, revolutionary liberation movements, this song that Mary sings became an anthem, a one where Mary became, in many ways, the champion or the exemplar of what it means to pray and sing subversive things uh, that put governments, oppressive governments, on notice. This is far from passive, and they're, they're oppressed communities who probably can pick, on, pick up on this the most. Now, one of the things, too, to keep in mind about the way Mary seems to respond to this promise that the, uh, that the angel conveys on behalf of God is that that promise in and of itself uh, or that the, uh, Mary's response in and of itself is, is uh, inherently very risky in the context that she would have, uh, that, that, uh, she would have uttered those words in. So when, uh, when the angel tells Mary that she is going to be pregnant with Jesus and that child will be the son of God, the one who delivers Israel, her response is, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. We actually talked about this particular response of Mary's one year ago during Advent season when we were actually finishing up the book of Numbers. So, there, so for Mary to say this, to respond to a promise in that way, is a beautiful and dramatic reversal of how vows worked in the ancient Near Eastern context. So there is, in the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, women often didn't have the autonomy or agency to make promises. The idea being, um, you know, if you do want to make a promise, make a vow of some kind for anything, um, find a man in your life, uh, like a, a husband or a father, to validate your vow because, you know, women can't be trusted to, to make promises and follow through on them. Now, the, the Torah discusses this very context and actually moves towards a world in which women ought to be held accountable for the promises that they make, even though within that context, context it is still ultimately men who are validating or affirming the promises that these women make. By the time you get to Mary in this context, the opposite is actually happening. God is making a promise to Mary. And it is up to Mary to affirm the promise that God is making. 
She has the agency in this situation. God is looking for a faithful Israelite through whom God can push God's story forward. And Mary is there ready and willing because she knows where this story is headed. Now, Mary, to teach it, this, uh, for, for her to have this idea, for her to um, think these thoughts and sing these songs, um, you see this actually fleshed out even more throughout the Gospel of Luke. There, uh, uh, the Gospel of Luke actually goes out of its way to carefully connect Mary's protest song here with the heart and soul of the things Jesus says throughout his ministry, like in the Lord's Prayer that we just prayed together, or in the Sermon on the Plain, which is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount that occurs in Matthew. So let me highlight for you some of those close connections that occur between Mary's song that we just read and the Lord's Prayer and the Sermon on the Plain. So one parallel, for example, uh, Mary begins her song with the, the premise that, this is, that everything is happening, that, that God is pushing God's plan forward because God's name is holy. And Jesus begins the Lord's Prayer the same way. We all pray together, Father, holy be your name. Mary's song also points out that God has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. The Sermon on the Plain has Jesus saying, blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. There is an intimate parallel there between the hungry being fed and the rich being turned away, that when God moves, kingdoms get thrown upside down and the people who were cast out find themselves in. There's another part of the song where, where Mary says, God has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Similarly, the Sermon on the Plain says, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And then he says the flip later, but woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Now, a view of Superman Jesus would probably uh, incline you to think that Jesus thought these things, those things that he preached in the Sermon on the Plain, like since he came out of the womb, he always knew those things because he was God. We've talked on many occasions before how that view of Jesus is harmful and distorting. It creates a distance between Jesus and us. It creates these uh, artificial or bizarre conceptions about what it means for God to become flesh in the first place. The, the important thing here to note, though, is that the Gospel of Luke actually goes out of its way to point out that Jesus grew that Jesus learned. So uh, just a couple, just one chapter after Mary sings this song, uh, when Luke is describing Jesus's upbringing, uh, Luke uses the words to say Jesus grew and became strong in the spirit in chapter two. And in a few verses later, he says, Jesus grew in wisdom. The idea is that here we know from the gospel writers themselves that Jesus learned. He learned what it meant to be a faithful Israelite. And when you see the kinds of things that he said, and you see the kinds of things his mom said, begs the question, where did Jesus learn these things about the nature of God? There's another connection too that I think actually helps flesh out this picture. There's another letter in the New Testament called the book of James. And it has been ascribed to many different James uh, throughout history. There were a lot of James on the ground in the early Jesus movement. I think there's a good case personally that um, that James is the brother of the Lord Jesus. And if you take that view, and even if you don't, there is a general consensus that, this, that what's in the book of James comes from a community that would have been familiar with those kinds of writings. You find that actually the book of James shares very closely 
what is at the heart of Jesus's message in the Sermon on the Plain or in the Lord's Prayer and with what Mary is singing in Mary's song. James is filled with themes like this. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Just a few verses after that, James says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming to you. Who does that sound like? And now knowing the connection between Jesus and James and Mary, it kind of gives you the idea that Mary was the one teaching these boys those things. Now, I know you could say, well, I mean, that's, that's an interesting pattern to note, but uh, lots of people in uh, Jesus's ministry talk like that. Lots of early followers of Jesus talk like that, to which I would say, yeah, that's exactly right. Where do you think they got it from? Mary was the OG, original gospel preacher. She was saying these things to Jesus when he was in there, when we, he was in her womb. That's what was going on on the ground. And we have to appreciate that this is the work that she was doing in raising her boys. Now, there's another aspect that we need to capture as well, and that is birth is vulnerable. First, to, to call birth vulnerable, I think we need to clarify because I think there is a, there's a, a stereotype, a harmful one that we have where in particular when we say, oh, birth is a, it's a very vulnerable time, we, we actually mean something, uh, we mean something harmful towards uh, our, you know, that is harmful to our attitudes towards women. So first, when, when the biblical arc, uh, like we should clarify, the biblical arc does not equate femininity with vulnerability in the sense that being vulnerable means being weak, okay? There are several images throughout the entire Bible of God, God's self, taking on female imagery to describe the kinds of things that God is doing. The prophet Isaiah describes God creating and protecting Israel as a birth process, that God is in labor delivering. Um, there are times when poetry in the Old Testament describes God creating uh, the mountains and the oceans as a birthing process. There are times when there, the uh, Old Testament writers will say that God comforts Israel the way that a mother comforts her child. The, um, God is described as a midwife, in the Psalms, there, is, uh, there are Psalms and parts of the Torah that describe God as a nursing mother of Israel. There are times, too, that uh, uh, Pastor Kevin talked about this, for example, last week, where God will be equated with a mother eagle uh, protecting her chicks. Uh, the prophet Hosea describes God as a mother bear protecting her cubs and, simil- and draws the same parallel for a mother lion protecting her cubs. Jesus himself describes himself as a mother hen wishing he could bring all of the Israelites both near and far, both in the center and on the margins under his wings like a mother hen would. The apostle Paul describes his own pastoral work in caring for the church in Galatia as a mother giving birth to a child. So drop it from your minds that somehow there's this idea of femininity and giving birth and nursing and caring for a child that is somehow inherently weak or beneath some of the males that are telling the story and pushing God's, uh, God's movement forward. So when I say um, that God is vulnerable or that birth is vulnerable, I actually mean something else. This idea, though, that women are vulnerable or precious and therefore need protection and should be cherished is actually this concept that sociologists call benevolent sexism. 
And you may, you may intuitively feel the, uh, the benevolent part of it, right? Because I'm sure that either some of you or a part of you thought, well, what's the harm or what's wrong in saying that birth is a vulnerable time or that women should be cherished or that women are special or, or different or something like that? The reality is, is that benevolent sexism is one of those things where we express positive attitudes about women in general that most of the time we don't even realize it are actually harmful to women on the whole overall. These, um, th- this idea of benevolent sexism is pervasive, not just within Christian circles, but within our culture as well. Um, you may remember from a few years ago, there was a, uh, an ad campaign from a, a greeting card uh, company on Mother's Day that talked about what the world's toughest job is. And the, the premise of the commercial was that um, they, they're, they're, this uh, agency sent out a job posting for this, this, this job that like, sounded so horrible. And it was like, you have to you work 24-7. Your client is very demanding and irrational. You lose your, your own life or you know, whatever. And, um, and it says, but it's extremely rewarding. It has great potential for meaning and being fulfilled. And then it's like, ah, it turns out that was the description for being a mother. And it, was very, it won tons of awards. As that was happening, actually, it bothered me greatly that that uh, that commercial was it was uh, received so well uh, and that it won so many awards because I think on a deeper on any level of deeper reflection there is something off about about praising motherhood as the world's toughest job or as the the highest calling that a woman could aspire to as is often said in some of our circles what does that say about the jobs, very meaningful and otherwise, that single people do? What does it say about families that have only one dad or only two dads? There is this idea that it is expressed in motherhood being the toughest job in the world that women are uniquely qualified or especially qualified for parenting in a way that men aren't. And when that happens, when you don't put fatherhood on the same level of importance as motherhood, surprise, surprise, it's going to be hard for fathers to step up to the challenge or rise to the bar that you set for them. And it's going to be very hard for mothers to live up to the the irrationally high bar that we set for them. Um, A lot of what makes being a mom hard, don't get me wrong, it absolutely is hard, is sexism and the weird high standards that we put on moms and the very low standards that we put on fathers. There's a a series of reflections I have in my own life that relate to this from what Christine and I call my misadventures in the world of benevolent sexism. So uh, a couple years ago, um, I had to go to a family funeral in Kansas City. It was for our extended family. And at the time, we had one two-year-old and two one-year-olds. And our, our policy between the two of us back then was, if you got to go away for a while, please take a kid with you to like, balance out how much work is going on. So, so no problem. So I grabbed one of our daughters, one of our uh, one-year-olds, uh, JJ, and I took her with me to fly to Kansas City. And I, oh, the things that I encountered in just like flying there and back 
were utterly fascinating to me and probably very sad for a, a lot of women. So, they, so uh, one thing is that as soon as, like as I was going through TSA to get on the flight to go to Kansas City, uh, you know, I was, I was wearing our, our daughter and I had to collapse the stroller, put it on the, the conveyor belt and go through. And the TSA agent who are not known stereotypically for their warmth in that process, <laughs> said to me, and again, mind you, I was not doing anything in an impressive way. I was literally normal level of competence, normal level of speed. <laughs> the TSA agent said, well done, sir. Well done for me getting, getting through. We had a, a connecting flight in LAX. JJ and I were sitting, having lunch in the airport at LAX. A woman came up to us while we were eating lunch, and she said, I just wanted to say, seeing you uh, and your daughter just have your lunch, and she looks so happy, well, you're doing such a good job. It makes me think you're like a woman. That's what she said. When we got on our plane, I mean, I, that's not the first time I've heard stuff like that. The... the, uh, the on our, uh, when I got off of our connecting flight, um, there was, you know how like when you get off of a flight, you have, um, if you check like a stroller at, uh, at the gate, you have to wait like right outside the plane for that, that uh, stroller to come back to you. So there was a woman who was wearing a child exactly the same age as I was wearing a child. So she and I were, were both wearing our children. But in addition, she actually had another, it looked like a two-year-old standing next to her. So there's both of us. Both of our strollers came at the same time, so you have to, you know, unlock it and set it up. She said to me, can I help you with that? And I remember thinking, and again, I looked like normal competence. I did not look lost or helpless, like I didn't know how to unlock a stroller. I was just, just normal. And I remember thinking, that in this scenario, I'm the one who looks like they need help? It was shocking to me. And then lastly, on the, on the flight back home, uh, there was a flight attendant who, when he, when he saw that it was just JJ and me sitting on our seat, he said, is it just you flying with your daughter? And I said, yeah, it's just me. And he said, how wonderful. So either way, that, so that's the end. That, that was the, like several collections. And, you know, of course, when I got, as soon as I landed, I asked Christine, do you think any of these things would have ever happened to you if you flew with just one child? And of course the answer is no. But the bar is set so low for what fathers have to do that all I got to do is show up and not break a stroller. And I get high fives in the airport <laughs> for taking my child through. That's what happens when we say things like motherhood is the highest calling that you can aspire to, or that motherhood is the toughest job that there is. Moms need help too. Everybody does. All parents do. Communities do. Raising a child is a collective effort across all kinds of genders and all kinds of people. And that is lost when we stereotype Mary and other women who choose to give birth in these contexts. The, uh, there's, there are several areas of research that have focused on this where, where they call it the motherhood penalty, in particular in this context that's talked about in the context of the wage gap, like wh what are the many reasons that women get paid less than men for the same amount of work. And part of this motherhood penalty is that uh, women who become mothers get penalized in the workplace in ways that men don't. When women uh, have, uh, have babies, they're more likely to uh, end up with the, having the perception imputed onto them that they are less serious about their work. They have less capacity to focus and pay attention. They're more distracted. This surfaces in the cultural ideas of pregnancy brain, right? That when, when you get pregnant, women can, like, you know, it's, it's licensed for them to become irrational or forget 
get things, and then it extends into what's called mommy brain. I mean, the, there, there is this, it's out there in the culture that in some ways a mother is a liability in doing her job in ways that is never imputed onto men for having kids. I have lots of kids. Nobody has ever expressed doubts. They're like, oh, is Omer not going to be able to concentrate on his job? People don't ask that about men. Now, the, um, the, the thing is, so if this is not what I'm saying about birth being uh, a vulnerable thing, then it raises the question, well, what am I saying? What, it, what is vulnerable about Mary giving birth to Jesus? And the thing that's often lost when we say that, when we think of Mary uh, as being vulnerable in giving birth to Jesus is that we think of Mary as somebody who knew completely what the Jesus movement was going to be about because the angel told her so. And what that does is it creates a Mary who is actually not open to having to actually debate and dialogue with her son about what this Jesus movement is about. Jesus had to learn from Mary, and for sure, Mary had to learn from Jesus as well. And that is an important aspect about birth that we need to take into consideration. Birth is vulnerable because when you create something and you put it out there into the world, it can end up ultimately taking a direction that you didn't intend it to go. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing, but... In some ways, that's a very powerless feeling, isn't it? And it is one that many parents do feel, but that's also something that many of you might feel when you create art. You are ultimately, once you put it out there, you are not in control, of, in full control of how it will be interpreted. When you create a company, you are ultimately not in control of how that company will be perceived and interacted with in the public. Creating something is vulnerable because the story can go in so many directions. It is wide open. The, um, the Gospel of Luke captures this as well, too. So uh, a little bit of time passes after Jesus is born, and uh, Jesus' parents take Jesus to the temple. Um, and uh, during his time at the temple, they encounter uh, a man named Simeon who gives a blessing to the whole family. And, uh, and here's how Luke describes it. He says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to, ca- to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will peace, pierce your own soul too. In Mary's case, giving birth to Jesus was something that was going to ultimately, the way Luke describes it, pierce her own soul. It was going to be hard for her to come to terms with what the Jesus movement really meant, that it would be at the same time more exhilarating, but also more shocking and devastating and sorrowful than she could have possibly imagined it to be. And Jesus within his own lifetime and within his interactions of Mary, with Mary pushed Mary to realize these things. There is, um, there's a, a set of teachings in, in the Gospel of Luke that really poke at this idea of the nuclear family like we've been talking about being the like, single greatest thing, uh, the most important thing that, that we have in a society. So, the, and this idea is not just a Christian one, the idea that, that um, family is everything. We've talked about this too before many times at Spark. Uh, what made me think about it too is recently there was an article that came out about The Walking Dead about how it's one of those few things in our polarized climate that unites both conservatives and liberals. And they talk about, well, what are the reasons that this show has so much appeal? My hypothesis for a long time has been that the reason that show has so much appeal is because at its fundamental core, it is about doing everything you can and literally killing anybody you need to in order to protect 
protect your own, to protect your nuclear family in order for you to survive. And that is a message that you, it does. It unites both conservatives and liberals. There is a script out there that says the most important thing anybody can have for themselves in their life is their family. And often what they mean is their nuclear family, mother, father, children. That's what they mean. And the Bible and Jesus push against this. They subvert this, this theme over and over. Here's one of the ways that Jesus addresses this tendency to, uh, to prioritize nuclear families. Now, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, Luke says, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. Jesus replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. That's the kind of thing that he says when his mother is outside the door. Then um, uh, later on, a few, a few chapters later, Luke has this interaction. Uh, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. What Jesus is doing is he's subverting this idea that the, you know, the, the, the most important thing or the most blessed thing that, that um, can be going on in this context is the family that is taking care of Jesus. Um, and, you know, you can imagine when uh, Jesus says these kinds of things to his family members, the, uh, the appropriate response would be, as the Gospel of Mark records for his family members, think Jesus was out of his mind. Like this movement had gone too far. It had gone further than any of them imagined that it would. The, the thing is, and I want all of us to keep this in mind, is that, of course, Jesus loved his mama, okay? We don't, I don't want to, to, to uh, misstate that. But I don't want to blunt the force of what Jesus is saying in these passages either. Jesus is deconstruction, deconstructing the worship of the nuclear family as your primary allegiance. Families come in all forms. No one would have felt that more in Jesus' day than Mary, an unwed teenage mother, who, from the looks of uh, what we can piece together from virtually unanimous history, um, who was a widow for most of her life as well. When we do our children's blessing, too, here at Spark, we try to make it very clear that our definition of family, the biblical definition or the biblical arc of family, is far more expansive and more inclusive than the world makes it out to be. Some of us want kids and don't have them, and it is painful. Some of us have kids and don't want them, and that's painful. Some of us have kids and wanted them, some of us don't have kids and don't want them. The, the reality is, is that no matter what, you're not deficient if you're not married or if you don't have kids and you are not superhuman if you are married and you do have kids. This is helpful all the more to remember when you think about who were the people who God called to push God's movement forward at such significant moments in the Jesus movement. It's a virtual who's who, people who subvert that nuclear family idea. There is John the Baptist, the prequel to Jesus's own movement. There's Jesus himself, who did not, uh, did not get married, was single, as, as his cousin John the Baptist was. There was the Apostle Paul, who was also not married. And in all three cases, these, these guys, look at this, these uh, heteronormatively gorgeous white men posing like that, who were all 
especially in the context for their day, really sticking out by not following that script of getting married and having babies. These are the kinds of people that God can work powerfully through to accomplish what God is doing. And we have to keep that in mind. There is space in God's family for all kinds of people from all kinds of families. That is the hope that Mary holds out for through Jesus. The last thing that I want to emphasize for tonight is that birth is greater than death. And we learn that through Mary and her song. Now, you might be thinking, of course it is. Who says that it's not? But I think one of the things to keep in mind, though, is that the, for basically as long as humans have been able to reflect on their condition, we've been aware of our mortality. And different cultures and communities reflect on that mortality in different ways. And in a lot of ways, the way we talk about birth and death is to say, is to think of death as a balancing force to birth, like an equal and opposite reaction, that it's a, the universe's way of equalizing things. We embrace many songs to that effect. That is what the song, The Circle of Life, is about in The Lion King, right? It is the idea that, hey, life and death, killing and being killed is just part of this harmonious way that nature exists. And I wouldn't blame you if you believed or agreed or assented to all of these, uh, these different philosophies or takes on birth and death. Because sometimes it feels like Bible writers themselves are saying it. So there is, uh, you know, you may recognize this from the bird song, Turn, Turn, Turn. But in Ecclesiastes, the author says there's a time for everything and includes that a time to be born and a time to die. So when we reflect on that, it makes us think like, okay, birth and death are equal parts of the experience. They balance each other out. Similarly, Job uh, says um, in, in one of his laments, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked will I depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. We sing that in a worship song, um, which is like, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? So we sing that song like, you know what? It is a balancing force in this world that with birth also comes death. Here is the thing though. When these authors are expressing these thoughts, they're expressing laments, and we don't have good reason to think that what they're saying is good theology. In fact, if you read books like Ecclesiastes or Job in their context, for extended verses, the characters who say these things are often lamenting many things about the perceived cruelty and capriciousness of a God who is in control of everything kills, lets people live at God's own whim. That is not the actual voice, the ideal arc that the Bible is speaking with. There is a prophetic voice that would actually say, when Job expresses that lament, or the teacher character in Ecclesiastes expresses that lament, they are wrong. The prophetic voice will instead say, God will swallow up death forever. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. That is the prophetic voice about death. They are not equal and opposing forces. They do not carry equal weight in God's story. Birth is an inherent good part of God's story. Death is an enemy. There is a, an image in Revelation that evokes a picture of Mary that I think captures these themes really, really well. 
So there's a scene in Revelation, and I understand it is hard to jump into an apocalyptic vision and start trying to interpret it. So we're going to keep it on a high level. I'll tell you the, the core parts of it that we need to recognize. There is this scene in Revelation 12 where the, uh, John, the author of Revelation, has this image. And I want to read this image, and then we'll talk about what it's saying about uh, what we think that it might be saying about Mary or about birth, about vulnerability, and what it really means um, for death to be an enemy. So here's how Revelation describes it. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child who, quote, will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. That's quoting an Old Testament psalm. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. This image to me is beautiful. This woman is pregnant, but she looks far from meek or passive or vulnerable. In fact, she is empowered by God to take on the force that epitomizes death and destruction, this satanic character that, looks, that comes in the form of a dragon. This is a glorious image of what looks to be Mary. Now, this obviously would make you think, yes, like that woman has to be Mary. In context, it's broader than that. It's the, it's the faithful Israel. It's like a collective image of the faithful, faithful Israelites who amidst all the struggles and torment, they do everything they can to push God's story forward into the world. And John expands this image a little later to include the woman's offspring, which is uh, all of those who, quote, hold to the testimony of Jesus. So it's actually all of us who are living out this woman's mission to bring life to the testimony of Jesus for every generation. But it's natural, right? And it has been natural throughout church history that when you think of this woman collectively as all of God's faithful people, to especially think about Mary, the one through whom Jesus came into the world. That's how you should look at Mary. It almost makes you jealous that John was the one who thought of it this way. You should find somebody who looks at you the way John looks at Mary in this vision. Powerful, strong, has agency, relies on God, and has what they need to overcome the dark forces of evil in this world. Just a few verses later in Revelation, John will, will complete the story by saying, when, the, when Jesus returns, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death and then he expands on that quote from Isaiah that we just read to say there were or, or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The, the belief that birth and death are on equal planes is part of a cycle. That's part of the way the world works now. And is part of the old order of things. That is not where this story is headed. And followers of Jesus know that in advance. So to wrap up, I also wanted to share the reflection, of course, and I think this will be reflected throughout our series. Birth is miraculous. It is God who does the birthing. God, the source of all life. I don't actually know how I'm alive. 
Now, of course, I know it in some ways in the scientific sense of how is it that I can develop a nervous system and perceive the world around me and breathe and interact with my environment. But that's not really the question that we're asking here, is it? I don't know how I'm alive. That is a question for philosophers like the characters in Toy Story 4 to grapple with along with all of us. But what I do know is that we have to give credit to where credit is due. Mary's song tells us that God is the source of all life. We can expand it. We can contract it. We can take risks and be vulnerable and do what it takes to make life flourish. Or we can side with the dragon and try to destroy it. When you create anything and you give birth, it is always a risk. You're putting something out there that will ultimately not be fully under your control. You share it with the world. But the good news from Mary, who birthed a baby and a Messiah and a movement that culminated in the rebirth of all of us, Mary's good news is that this work is worth the risk. It is worth being vulnerable. It is a miracle. And you are building something when you create something that Jesus, life of all life, can faithfully preserve because not even death can destroy it. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for life, for everything that you do and all of the ways that you shock us with your power and creativity. Please give it to us. Help us to be able to pray like you, to pray like Jesus did, to sing songs like Mary did. Help us create great art and great work and technology that can actually further your kingdom. Bless us to be empowered like Mary was, the mother of life and salvation. We are so grateful for you and everything you've revealed to us through your faithful people. In your son's name we pray. Amen.